0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the CMS Oil and Gas Annual Review podcast series. In this series, we're going to be discussing the latest developments in English oil and gas law and what it means for the industry. So my name is Sarah Grenfell. I'm a disputes partner. and I'm based in London, and I'm joined today by Mark Rathbone, who's a transactional partner in our Singapore office, and Ted Rhodes, also a transactional partner in our Rio office. And today, we're going to be discussing the English High Court case. Uh, The judgment was handed down in 2019, and the case name is Priyanka Shipping Limited and Glory Bulk Carriers Limited. I'm now going to be handing over to Mark, who's going to provide you with a summary of the facts of the case.
1: Thanks, Sarah. There's two parties to this case. The defendant is a Singapore company who are former owners of a cape-sized bulk carrier. the, the, the buyer, the claimant in this case, was purchased a vessel uh, under a memorandum of agreement, and basically the price was paid. It was delivered to the buyer on the 14th of May, 2019, in Singapore. The purpose of the sale was to basically trim down the fleet for the defendant, and it was sold for the purposes of scrap, and scrap only. So the significant part of this case and the facts were that the MOA and round of agreement stated that the buyers guaranteed that they wouldn't use the vessel for trade. Essentially, it would be scrapped, and that they would furnish a certificate at the end of that to demonstrate that it had been scrapped. At the time that it was delivered, the buyer, according to its to the facts, had intended to sell the vessel on for scrap, but within six days of the sale, couldn't find a buyer for the for the vessel to scrap it. And at that time, the market changed. The price for scrap had dropped, but uh, the actual freight market had risen. And the buyer's agent then began making inquiries to use the vessel for cargo. A few days after that, the buyers sent an email to the seller through their agents, in effect asking them to drop the restriction that was in the MOA. And the answer they got back was no. So basically, the clause stood. There was a restrictive covenant that they couldn't use the vessel. It had to be sold for scrap. However, despite that, in the following three months, the the buyers um, used the vessel and concluded two trading fixtures. And during the course or very shortly before the hearing um, uh, uh, what this case is all about, they had actually uh, entered into a third fixture. So the seller claimed for an injunction to restrain the third fixture, and he also claimed negotiation damages, which we'll explain a little bit later, or both. The buyer counterclaimed the seller was entitled to no more than nominal damages. I'm going to hand over to Ted, who will take you through the uh, decision to court.
2: Thank you, Mark. Yes, so in short, the court in this case uh, granted the injunction, but refused to uh, award uh, negotiation damages. And in coming to that conclusion, the court gave a useful uh, analysis of uh, negative covenants uh, and their enforcement. They said that normally, but not invariably, negative covenants would be enforced by way of injunction, and that there was no need to show that damage had been or would be suffered in order to uh, obtain an injunction to enforce a negative covenant. As we know, uh, injunctions are an equitable remedy and therefore discretionary. And the courts can refuse to grant them if uh, to do so would be unconscionable or oppressive. But that test goes beyond simple hardship uh, or inconvenience, which are treated as um, natural consequences of, of the restriction. Um, And it is on the party that is seeking to avoid the negative covenant uh, to demonstrate that the court that its enforcement would be oppressive. However, in relation to uh, the claim for negotiation damages, the court held that based on uh, settled precedents, they would only be awarded if the seller had a had lost uh, a lost the use of a valuable asset, and in this case, because the seller had already sold the vessel, it had no proprietary interest in the vessel, nor any ability to use it to trade or to profit from its use. Uh, and therefore it refused to grant, um, uh, negotiation damages in this case. It would have been, the, the seller would have been entitled to common law damages if it were able to show, uh, that it had lost benefit, um, by the, uh, the breach of the uh, restrictive covenant. But in this case, although the use of the vessel had contributed to an oversupply in the market and potentially pushed down prices, that was in such a minor, unquantifiable way um, that damages were were not pleaded on that basis.
0: Thanks, Ted. Um, There's just a couple of points I thought might be worth drawing out before we move on to a discussion about this case. Uh, I think in relation to negative covenants, I found it interesting that the submissions that were made by the party seeking the injunction were pretty straightforward. And that was really that uh, under English law, there's this presumption, as you mentioned, Ted, that covenant should be enforced by injunction. Um, and essentially that, the, um, that was something that the a presumption that the buyer had to rebut and couldn't do so. But when you turn to the party that was resisting the injunction, um, they said that the court should have regard to the adequacy of damages and whether it was just to leave the seller to its remedy and damages. And I think the the case is helpful in um, making clear that um, the courts um, recognise this policy in favour of enforcing contracts and, and really that they support this proposition that a defendant shouldn't be able to, through this payment of damages, buy the privilege of um, infringing the claimant's contractual rights. And then I think moving to negotiation damages, um, they were characterised as negotiation damages, what the claimant was claiming here, and that was the difference in value between what was paid for the vessel to be used as scrap and the value of the vessel if it was sold for trading. And the court um, identified scenarios where you could claim negotiation damages successfully, And some of the examples they gave were, um, for example, a restrictive covenant over land or an intellectual property agreement or confidentiality agreement. But here, the claimant failed the key test of um, whether the breach resulted in a loss of a valuable asset created or protected by the right infringed. And so um, in some ways, a bit of a a difficult victory for the claimant because they they got their injunction, but they didn't get the negotiation damages, which they claimed, which were pretty significant. Um, I think the negotiation aspect, uh, negotiation damages aspect of the claim is on appeal. So um, something to bear in mind. Uh, and so really, I mean talking about the takeaways of this case, um, what are your thoughts ted about about the the approach that the the court took? I think it's
2: interesting uh, the rejection of uh, negotiation damages in this case um, because in rejecting that and enforcing the injunction that that really the court is tending to a market-based solution. Uh, it's, it's taking the burden off of the court to put itself into the party's position and calculate the, the value of that negative covenant. Um, and by enforcing it, they're saying, well, if the parties want to negotiate between themselves to, to have that wave, then they're entitled to do so, but otherwise it, it will be enforced. Um, and I think the other interesting point here is that the parties should avoid uh or or we should avoid uh drawing a a big general rule here as always the the case was based on its facts and we're talking about a bulk carrier um, which is a very large and commoditized market which is why it was impossible really to show an effect on prices caused by breach of one negative covenant. That might not be the case, for example, in uh, the FPSO market or a market for specialized rigs or or other equipment where the market is smaller and more specialized and potentially expert witnesses could uh, identify direct damages caused to the seller. Um by those those vessels uh which should have been scrapped reappearing in the market,
0: yeah, I think that's I think that's a good point about the facts being um all being quite fact specific I mean it seemed to me if you're seeking to avoid litigation uh, going forward as well, where you've got a negative covenant, that there it should remain open to the parties and it would make some sense in agreeing a liquidated damages regime. Uh, And I can't help but think that looking at the facts of this case, that you can see that the defendant might well have taken the view early on that perhaps only nominal damages would be payable um, and that there was some benefit um, in them um, breaching uh, the negative covenant because they were doing that um, quite uh, openly, weren't they, with the number of of contracts that they entered into in relation to the vessel. What's your take on the case, Mark?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. It's uh it's often a commercial decision, isn't it? What's the remedy that they I'm gonna have laid against me versus the commercial gain that I'm gonna get? And they obviously put their cards on the fact that it was gonna be a um it was gonna be um better for them to suck up the neg- the nominal damages uh and make some money on the vessel rather than have it sitting there. Um you mentioned the point about liquidated damages. It's it's often Quite a negotiated clause in a contract and can be very difficult to to draft. And um, whilst we talk about Cavendish and, and MacDessi in in the UK, it's not necessarily the case in Asia. Um, there is precedent in Singapore that rejects that test uh, and sticks to the the genuine pre-estimate of loss test. Uh, and and also, of course, you know, not for this podcast, but. There are other uh, jurisdictions that are often, you know, quite well um, that deal with ship sales and stuff around Asia, that are civil jurisdictions that where liquidated damages are not necessarily recognized in the form that we would recognize them under U.K. law, um, which is a completely uh, a big can of worms that we, we don't really want to open now.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. I think um, I've certainly seen seen cases where um, contracts might have the governing law change quite late in the day and parties might not always appreciate what the impact that can have on on various doctrines that they might recognise or know well under their own uh, governing law or one that they're more familiar with. So I think we're probably agreed that uh, this case doesn't really raise anything new, but it's helpful if you're wanting to understand what the remedy will be in respect of a breach of a negative covenant. uh, And also uh, interesting to see the approach taken on negotiation damages, but as Ted said, something that's probably confined uh, to the facts of this case, and it could turn out differently um, in relation to uh, a different case on different facts. Well, thank you for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy future podcasts in this series.